0: Hey all, thanks for clicking that play button today. You're all in for a treat with this interview with Michelle Martin, who's an entrepreneur aiming to help people achieve functional wellness through her company, Maka Health, which is looking to build using Web3 technologies. I enjoyed my chat with Michelle a few weeks ago when this was recorded. I hope you all find it valuable and entertaining. Just a quick reminder that Health Unchained has launched a Supercast Premium Membership where the community can watch interviews before the rest of the public get to see them so that's uncut videos of these recordings. You can find a link to our Supercast website in the episode show notes. Health Unchained is also a media partner for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today Symposium in New Orleans, Louisiana, happening in September. If you're interested in buying tickets or sponsoring the event, please reach out so I can help you coordinate with our teams. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show.
1: What
2: is, blockchain? What, is blockchain? Blockchain. what is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Unchained. I'm here today with Michelle Martin, founder and CEO of maca Health. Michelle, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing?
2: I'm great. It's great to be here. Really an honor. I love what you're building with with Health Unchained.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. And can you tell the audience maybe where you're calling us from today?
2: Sure. I'm in Lisbon, Portugal. I was in Tulum a couple of weeks ago, and I'm a Canadian by background. So more than you asked for, but it's 3 p.m. here in Lisbon.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Awesome. So can you tell the audience a bit more about your background, your career so far, like the trajectory that brought you to building Maca Health?
2: For sure. My first job was in journalism, actually. So I worked in corporate communications, PR, all that fun stuff. But I really just liked finding out new things about the world and was insanely curious. So that naturally led into startups. When I was in corporate, I started moonlighting as a co-founder of a deep tech startup called Ethlo really around collective decision-making and how to utilize math to do much better e-democracy, which sounds a lot like what we talk about now in DAOs. So very early days, that was over a dozen years ago, but moved on to doing an art marketplace and had that acquired. Also before there was talk of NFTs or anything fun like that. So in some ways, I feel like I've been a little bit ahead of the curve of some of these components, but now sort of all of these fun pieces of my past are getting rolled up into market Health. I feel like sort of as we age and grow up and older, something as big as health kind of starts to impact us all in any sort of way. We always want to be more energized, feel clearer, more productive, and help our friends and family who are sick. So we've all had these experiences. For me, this health space is, is the way that all that sort of capacity can roll up into some meaningful impact.
0: That's interesting. That's pretty cool. You've started these multiple companies. I guess my question is, what drives you to entrepreneurship? Like, What makes you want to do this so many times?
2: Now, there is something deep inside of me that wants to change the world and leave it a better place, as utopian as that sounds. But really, on a day-to-day basis right now, I just like solving problems. And it's really fun to have a new problem and sort of look at the resources and look at the technologies available today. Everything's evolving so fast and going, okay. so there's a huge capacity for many, many types of impact in the health space. How do we piece together the best, most cutting edge, but also like practical and hard-hitting frameworks and tech? to really come out of the gate rolling. So in this case, it's a day-to-day fascination of how to do it better each day. But I think early on when I was a little bit newer to startups, it would be like something would just bother me. I was like, why can't I buy or rent a piece of art from a local artist? You know, why do I have to go to Ikea? Why can't I find what I'm looking for? And so it would be a problem like that would give rise to a marketplace or whatever needed to come out of it.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of curious about the art marketplace you built. What was the name of that? And also like, was it artists and purchasers? Or what was the marketplace you were building? And what kind of art maybe?
2: So it was a hyper local art marketplace model. So essentially launched it in Vancouver, BC. I think we had like 120 artists on it. But we were essentially doing a B2B model. So art subscription for businesses. And then also there's art sales, we were doing shows, but we were really at this connection point between the business community and local artists. So the artists loved it because they hadn't had the exposure, at, you know, all these fancy Vancouver club type situations where their art show would not have that same clientele. So it was really great. We ended up selling pretty early on to a company that was building essentially Pinterest for interior designers. So essentially bringing our artists onto a platform where there was interior designers, end users, art and artisans to sort of curate spaces. But unfortunately, company didn't make it. But, you know, we have these experiences as well in entrepreneurship. So lots of lessons to be learned. Yeah.
0: That's for sure. I don't know any entrepreneurs who haven't failed at least a few times. So that's fair. So let me ask you a question about what brought you into the Web3 or blockchain world? What was your initial exposure to it?
2: Well, I think this is kind of a fun story. So we're going to go back circa like 11 years ago and i sort of into this, I don't know, conscious dance community thing in Vancouver. This is a very West Coast answer, but there was a space called the Dharma Lab. And so I was there one night, met the owner and he had a Bitcoin farming operation set up and was feeding me dried organic fruit that was from the heat being generated from that. This is eons ago. I was introduced to what that was. Fast forward, I know, the look on your face, it's true. This is my introduction. And then fast forward to 2017. And I ended up in this first conference, which was filled with a bunch of philosophers, sort of critical theorists, and like blockchain engineers, which is like a very strange combo. But essentially, that became a big dialogue about blockchain and ethics and technology ethics. And then basically fast forward to 2019. And I caught sort of the, oh, DeFi is a thing. Oh, this is very cool and started investing in projects. But that's sort of my arc through that.
0: Very cool. Yeah, that sounds like a interesting experience, especially you mentioned that someone was using the heat from mining to dry the fruit. Did I get that right?
2: Yeah, well, he's very regenerative. <laughs> yeah.
0: Don't let anything go to waste. I like it. So I understand that your company, Maka Health, is also part of the Creative Destruction Lab in Toronto. So can you talk to me more about that and what that offers? Like, why are you a part of that organization? And maybe just like what they do? Yeah.
2: Sure. We're actually um flipping out of that cohort and going to be moving towards the health one in the spring. But essentially, Creative Destruction Labs is like a global incubator with I think there's like a dozen different streams in several different countries. And they have a blockchain stream and a Web3 stream. I was interested in this Toronto blockchain stream for a bunch of reasons. One is just the mentorship you get through them is phenomenal. WIDA, learning about game theory, very like economics driven education. So I would say it got me deep into the theory of the how on the marketplaces and how consumers and end users sort of play these games. So everything now looks like an incentive structure game to me after that, like it kind of ruined a little bit of my idealistic everything's for the good. I'm like, oh, no, we have to structure it for good.
0: It's got to be designed.
2: It's all by design. So that was a lot of fun. And they definitely asked a lot of hard questions. You get in a room with, I think like, 60 different, you know, investors and mentors, and they plug you with questions until you forgot what they asked in the first place. So definitely, I think I described it, we definitely came out a bit bruised, but better for it, you know, when you have that many bright minds trying to poke holes in what you're building, it's good and it's tough. So yeah, huge respect for them. I'm really excited to move into the health stream, though, because it's interesting, the energy, as you know, around like health and blockchain is pretty niche right now. So the blockchain people don't necessarily get the health stuff. It's a communication challenge for sure. And I think I'm getting better for it all the time, but that's a bit of my experience.
0: I mean, I agree with you. I think it's still pretty niche. It's interesting to think about how big the digital health space is, not the blockchain health, but just the regular, I'm thinking telehealth, consumer engagement or patient engagement, apps, fitness trackers, all those things. But if you think about game theory and how you can apply it to those applications and communities, you know, there's like a whole world of different operating models you can start working on. And I think that's something that you are obviously aware of and Maka Health is trying to tackle. So specifically, what problems in the existing healthcare system, do you think, is Maka Health trying to tackle?
2: I'm going to comment on your last point before tackling that question, because one of the things that I've found in building in this space, this fairly niche space, is this, we kind of shut up and wait, all of these interesting new ideas come into the space. So it's like you have to always be listening and creating with the partners that are sort of with you at any moment. So there's many problems in health. Maybe I'll just sort of swoop into a tiny bit of my own story here that led to Maka Health, because that would sort of give that personal big why. About seven years ago, I just raised my seed round for another startup I hadn't even mentioned in the intro and had a team rolling. And I went from what I thought was like on top of the world and everything was super cool to not being able to get out of bed. And it was like, almost like an overnight thing. So I ended up moving up to Whistler, living this very sort of lifestyle oriented couple of years, gave the investors money back and just kind of had to reassess what the heck happened. Now, what that happened and how to get out of it was the insight, the love to a Hell, because I was very self optimization focused at the time. I had scheduled in my meditation and was going to the gym and all that stuff. But what I recognized just through this sort of diagnostic process is that what I had been taking for granted as health or medicine was actually quite shallow. It wasn't taking into consideration my genetics, for example. I wasn't taking into consideration like ongoing labs that weren't just looking at like my Average. If I was within average, but if I was in optimal, and you know, really being able to see a level of granularity to know where I was on track and where I wasn't, what I came to understand is that when you layer in something like genetics and labs, and then also all the symptoms in your lived day-to-day experiences, and really attuned to that, this creates this incredibly rich data environment where there's so much more potential to catch things in advance, prevent crazy crashes that should have never happened, and essentially, like. Live longer, really, just like increase your health span. So, and everyone kind of wants that anyway got introduced to functional medicine. And like many people on this path to find functional medicine, it took many doctors and many dead ends because the specialist would only look at the little special thing, not the whole. So essentially, as I sort of grew into this methodology of living functional medicine, us at Maka have kind of termed it now functional wellness because in work, we'll like sprint for the week. We'll sprint for a week or two weeks, development sprint. We're like, why don't we look at our health like that? Why don't we actually sprint? And then continually iteratively improving all the time. If you're a professional athlete, you do that, but you maybe do it in a very specific way. We're saying is that that can be like a lifestyle and it can be really deeply satisfying. And also the problems we're trying to solve, it really can improve that illness to wellness journey if that's where you're on. But really, I just want the world to be able to like get healthy and stay healthy and like continually be on that optimization path.
0: I think great points. When I think about how people perceive their own wellness, everyone has a different idea of what that means. And everyone has a different strategy for taking care of themselves or not. I mean, some people simply avoid it because getting started is just so hard for them. At least that's how they perceive it. And there's been hundreds, maybe thousands of apps and companies trying to find ways to use maybe game theory or use different sorts of nudging protocols or nudging mechanisms to enable people to be more active or aware of their health that could be through their genetic information that could be through maybe a specific diagnosis that they have and just understanding what that means for them and it's a moving process right everyone has their journey so what is Maka health trying to offer the community or users to help them do it in a way that's different or better than maybe what others are doing does that make sense
2: it totally makes sense, and you know, like any good startup in our space, we have like this competitive analysis document that has like you know 150 companies on it, and we're like, there's this feature and this benefit, and that's very aware of the point you just made, and actually not too concerned about it. Actually, it's interesting from that perspective because I think for us, there's a focus on the technology, but there's a focus on the people and the energy. We're not just solely reliant on the technology. We can be, but essentially, we've built out what is Maka Premium is our first to market offer, and That's on the path to be working with digital nomads, sort of elite digital nomads in Mexico. Long story short, people that are focused on health optimization, they often are traveling the world, are often having to encounter all of these different, especially entrepreneurs, like different health systems. And like one place you can't get your lab tests back is different referral systems. Like it's just a big old mess, right? In some sense, as long as we can provide concierge support, and uh, I don't want to talk too much about this, but we're actually moving pretty deeply in the direction of wellness experiences on the ground as well. So that's pretty exciting, really connecting that like in real life experience with your digital experience. So yeah, there's kind of a lot going on under the hood right now that's getting me pretty excited. That would be one unique piece. I think from the tokenization perspective, I haven't actually seen beyond Sweatcoin like any sort of mass adoption for like deep functional integrative health that's fun and engaging. I don't know what I'm missing, but I haven't found a maca in this whole universe. So I'm pretty happy about that.
0: Something just came to mind. What does maca Health stand for? How did you come up with the name?
2: There's a functional answer. We used to be Individual Technology Inc, and that is our corporate name, but it doesn't quite have the sexy ring to it of Maka health. So maca is a herb, right? That A male virility herb, if you will. So it's well known in the naturopathic and herbal communities or among practitioners. Also, that's not really why we chose it though. We chose it because it means beloved one in Hawaiian. So it's like your friend, your trusted one. Here. We thought that was beautiful and reflected of us.
0: Interesting. I actually did not know that. That's really fascinating. And I always think about, and I listen to other podcasts who talk about functional wellness. Uh, one of them, Dr. Hyman, he's a huge podcaster. He talks about functional wellness. Has lots of content about that. And I think people sort of understand where he's coming from and try to follow some of his guidance. And you know, I wonder, like, is Maka Health sort of like gonna help create content for people in that way or in some sort of way like that, or is it more about a market? place connecting practitioners with health optimizers? What would my experience be like? Yeah,
2: that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the very most superficial high level, I'm like, oh, it's like the Uber of functional medicine. You know, there's providers and there's end users, but they both of them have really powerful, robust, like super tool platforms in their hands, right? There's a lot of utility on both sides. For us, we've had this focus on building out our initial member app. and Now we're going to build the practitioner application next. It's all designed. It's gorgeous. Now, you know, the code hits next for it. But from practitioner perspective, they're getting access to new users because they have public profiles. They have content that they can upload. It's all sort of tagged and searchable. We're really focusing on video content. It's how people like to absorb stuff largely. And essentially, so our Creating this content repository. In addition, we have on the member individual side, just like a lot of secure health data validation organization tools, and of course, building out tracking with MakaCoin. So we are gamifying the whole experience, as you would expect for a Web3 company. But the premise and what we've been working on our technical white paper to accomplish also with the CDL folks was how can we actually pay people for their data, but have a financial model that will support that? And we actually have have cracked that code. I'm not going to share it here, but we have cracked the code. So now we have to go execute on it. But it is about data sovereignty and control, but we want people to be incentivized to participate with their data. And knowing that you just came from Decy in London, I'd be excited to talk more, but it's definitely a very interesting space that a lot of people are looking at. I hope we can accomplish on what we think we can. So there you go.
0: Sure. And kudos to you for finding out a model that looks like works. I'm very curious though like I know you said you're not going to get too much into it, but Anything you can share with the audience? Because I feel like people are like dying to know like what governance model or tokenization model is feasible. Like it's, it's been, like I think, a struggle for people to find something that's sustainable outside of maybe like NFT communities or something. I wouldn't even argue that's sustainable yet. So do you know what I'm saying?
2: I know what you're saying. And I will say it's through partnerships with insurers. So it does come to that. But we have to serve in very specific ways and have those communications going. I think for us, it's about patient consent about individual consent and knowing where that data is going and making sense of it. But we have to look at all of the members of the ecosystem, right? Payers, enterprises, individuals, practitioners. And this is a question we asked ourselves. Our management team was in Lisbon in November on a big whiteboard for a few days. And we're like, how do we actually incentivize health? Like, how can it actually be that as the end goal? I know everyone wants it. (laughs) Yeah, tough problem. (laughs) But like an ecosystem problem, right? Like most of the startups you talk to. Every piece plays a role to make the whole sort of game theory work, right?
0: Certainly an ecosystem problem. I don't think one company can solve it all. It has to be a collaboration with other partners and find ways to work together. So I'm with you there.
1: Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Just a reminder that the News Corner sources can be found in the episode show notes in your podcast app or website. Many of you may be thinking about joining or even starting a DAO. That's a decentralized autonomous organization. You may wonder if the tokens or NFTs you buy or offer are entering you into a potential community contract with virtual ownership of certain assets and rights, not to mention expose you to some major gains or total losses. However, as some know, the majority of DAOs out there now are experimental. Many of their operating and mission governance models are yet to be battle-tested against the hammers of the law and unforeseen liability. In fact, most DAOs are far from being actually fully decentralized or autonomous, especially if they wish to participate in any of the traditional frameworks of our legal and economic system. When a DAO is not wrapped into a corporate shell, that entire project could be viewed as a general partnership. Courts might consider you a partner in the business and judge you liable for millions in connection to hacked funds or even trademark infringement, as in the case with Nike and StockX NFT's collection lawsuit. As it currently stands, any DAO that needs to enter into contracts involving real estate, intellectual property, or even buying the U.S. Constitution cannot simply be code-based, as they will need some type of legal personality. DAOs with clearly defined dispute resolution processes are difficult to manage entirely via smart contracts. Many lawyers are critical of the way in which the legalization of DAOs has rolled out, pointing out that certain provisions of Wyoming's DAO law are antithetical to the base idea that a DAO is supposed to operate entirely via smart contracts. Currently, DAOs have no legal status in most jurisdictions, says Irina Heaver, partner of Keystone Law, which specializes in the blockchain industry, and general partner of VC Investments from Ikigai Ventures. She's talking in the context of metaverse projects that are being launched on decentralized protocols. Legally speaking, traditional companies seem to remain the main game in town. Some say the concept of a traditional company is morally outdated. The Howey test is not used by the Cayman and British Virgin Islands legal system, which is a favorable jurisdiction for DAOs to operate. Despite the headaches DAOs are already producing for the legal profession, the lawyers interviewed for this article share a common thread of optimism regarding the new concept not just a legal vehicle, but as a movement for the modernization of the corporate world. If you enjoyed this news corner, take a moment to rate and review the podcast in your podcast app to help reach more listeners. And now let's get back to our interview with your hosts, Ray Dogum and Michelle Martin, founder and CEO of MacA Health.
0: Having been part of the wellness space for so long, can you maybe tell us throughout your experience how the whole landscape has evolved? Meaning like 40, 50 years ago, yoga, for example, was not such a popular thing in the United States. Now it's much more popular. So I think that's just a very specific one example I can think of in terms of wellness, but you know, you have like super fruits and all these different things that are part of this wellness culture. But maybe you can describe from your perspective
2: yeah. And it very much depends who your audience is. I think the very sort of conservative answer to that is the digitization of everything and empowerment through that. Like it hasn't happened on mass yet, but there's all the peeps are there. A lot of good apps that are there. I'm going to be a little bit more controversial and say, I actually see like psychedelic medicine being a huge a part of our next era here. I mean, I was just in Tulu, Mexico, for the last year, and can say that wellness tourism in terms of like self discovery and related to psychedelics is huge. My pathway through that was breathwork. I mean, similar to yoga, I think breathwork is becoming the new yoga. You know, people congregate for it and it's a place where people share authentically and feel heard and connected and discover new insights and like really creates community. So, that to me is very alive in the circles that I see and know.
0: On the breathwork, I just want to make a comment on breathwork. I think you're totally right. I think there's been like a lack of education on how people should be breathing overall, like using your diaphragm appropriately, activating your vagus nerve. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space. You mentioned psychedelics. I don't know if you've heard of Dow. They were at D-Side London. They're part of the D-Side community. PsyDAO is helping to encourage and fund psychedelic research as well through their DAO. Maybe I should get them on the show one day. That's a good idea. But I think it's really interesting how that cultural shift has happened. I don't want to say quickly because I know people have been trying to make this happen for like decades now. But seemingly in the last five years or so, I think there's just been, I guess, an interest from venture capitalists. I think that's what kind of sparked this heavily in terms of like, you know, wanting to be able to monetize or sell mushroom capsules and things like that.
2: Well, I mean, Canada has been leading the charge in many ways in that way. You know, we have ketamine clinics for depression in downtown Vancouver. There is a whole movement around psychedelic assisted therapy and all of these programs, Numerous public codes that are, I don't know how their stock's doing right now, but, you know, has been a really big part of the last couple of years. So, like, the narrative's been all around there. And it's kind of like marijuana. There's a whole process, right? There's a whole like cultural and stigmatization process, destigmatization process occurring. But I think the difference now is that plant medicine is being seen as no longer sort of a party thing in the same way. Like there's a real transition for it being intentional and well-hosted, well-guided. A lot of my friends are in this community in some way. And a lot of people are going through big life transitions because a lot of things in the world doesn't make sense, you know, and a lot of people are affected by it. So... It makes sense that people are looking for deeper meaning and purpose. And then that wellness comes out of that self-discovery. Tulum being just sort of like an epicenter for that self-discovery. By the way, where are you
0: again, Ray? Where are you sitting? I'm in Boston, East Coast. Mm -hmm.
2: So probably less, you know, people getting around in a circle doing breath
0: work together. I don't know, but... Actually, you'd be surprised. Cambridge and Somerville. I mean, there's lots of different types of communities out here. Many meditation like, I guess, meetup groups and things like that that are here. And in terms of psychedelics and cannabis is legal in Massachusetts, recreational and medical. I'm not sure about the ketamine clinics situation. Maybe someone listening could let me know. <laughs> but yeah, it's evolving. I think the whole United States is kind of weird because each state has their own rules about that stuff. So it makes it a little bit complicated. Like I know Oregon and a few other states, they've legalized or I think decriminalize a lot of these psychedelics now.
2: Oregon usually is up there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's a transitional, it takes time. And I think that's okay. I think you don't necessarily want to rush into it because I think that's what happened 40 years ago. And then when we rushed into it, people panicked and then they had the war on drugs. We don't need another war on drugs. <laughs> I think that's in the history books. I don't think that it's going to help anyone to stop using plants for something that they feel is beneficial to their spiritual or mental health
2: take this a step into the more sort of typical mainstream again, if we actually look at supplement sales since COVID, I think almost 20% year over year growth, like really substantive. So just having that phase where people all of a sudden, you know, were stuck at home worried about their immunity day by day amidst all the social isolation and things that were occurring. Yeah, people are just coming out of that way more aware. And on our platform right now, you could go in and, and do a symptoms analysis and get your personalized supplement recommendations, which could be helpful for us all, but it's definitely a trend towards, I guess, less pharmaceutical-driven, more natural interventions. At least we're seeing a lot of that in the communities that we're in. So that desire.
0: Interesting. Let's talk about, in general, let's start at the high level now. Is data privacy actually important for people? Because we are kind of trending towards a world where everything is more transparent, if you haven't noticed. Everyone's sharing their photos online, for example, their transactional payments on Venmo. Things are becoming more open overall. And of course, you're going to have opposite ends of those extremes. Like People want to be more private too. But generally speaking, I think people are on the average sharing more than they're hiding or keeping to themselves. Thoughts?
2: Yeah, sure. For some reason, I've been hanging out with privacy tech communities for the last 10 years. So when you're talking to me about the average, I'm like, really? I think it's actually great for me to hear. I'm personally aspiring each day to be more of a digital footprint minimalist. That being said, this invitation to be on this podcast definitely broke that. So just in a generalized sense, privacy is extremely important. Why do I say that? It's a geopolitical problem. I mean, I have friends that know their last name is Mohammed, and then they try to be at an airport. And the next thing, I mean, all this crap, it's awful. And there's so many reasons that people need to keep what they believe private, but also keep their health data private. I mean, health data privacy is quite interesting for me, because there was a time a few years ago, where I would have been called, you know, one of the chronic illness people, but did, you know, would I have wanted an employer to know that? Would I want a venture capitalist to know that? Probably not, right? Like, it holds a whole bunch of stigma. That being said, there's a level of nuance. Being a chronic illness person can be a grayscale, but... For myself now, and certainly the user research we've been doing, we found that from like a UX UI perspective on their platform, we have to get quite detailed into what consent is given for what piece of data. Because you'd think that a health team, you know, someone would just share their health data vault with everybody. But no, you know, an individual doesn't want their daughter to know that they have certain test results, but they're okay with the physician knowing, but they still want their daughter involved in being a sort of a quarterback for their health process and being part of it. So you kind of need to have this whole zone of control because communication is important. But people have a lot of, maybe they just don't want people to know because they care about their stress levels. They don't want to burden them. But when it comes to health stuff, grandma's got cancer, like you know, not everyone can handle it as well. And so it just has to be that level of empathy. So I guess when I see data privacy, I see the two sides of like user empathy and like control, but also like protection from like a geopolitical sense. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this, but Facebook gave data about like a young woman's abortion, right? And it went into court, right? So you have to structure things to be much more supportive of individual autonomy than that, because that's a political decision that's completely impacts someone's life. So this is a moving target, but essentially how to most mindfully navigate global regulatory situations to give people the greatest autonomy is an active conversation we're always having.
0: You mentioned a great point about Facebook sharing data about somebody who may have had an abortion. And in the United States, that's really important because Roe v. Wade was overturned and protections for women who are pregnant and want to get an abortion. They were out the window, federally speaking. I was reading about how many apps that were used for tracking menstrual periods and like women's health and all these useful tools and apps that women use all the time were subject to potentially be shared with federal officials as well in order to potentially prosecute them. Data privacy issue, huge data privacy issue there. And what was neat, though, that I found some of those companies or apps had introduced a new feature because of that, where they could be completely anonymous. I haven't dug into it too much detail, but I just thought that was kind of a good idea. And hopefully that is the new trend. And we're not going more into this transparent world. We're going more into like a dignity, more with human dignity world.
2: Once you see our technical white paper, which we're constantly updating, you'll see we're very much along those same lines. I think the challenge is you want to accomplish it all. so. Unfortunately, if someone doesn't have a verified identity, if they're truly anonymous on the platform, then we can't give like awards for health data, right? So it cuts off that side, I think as long as we can give people those options, and if they are vulnerable, like have those options for them. But yes, definitely, it's all a bit of a compromise.
0: That's a good point, though. Like if you aren't going to share some of the details required by law for you to be able to reward these people, you know, name, address, who you really are, proof of ID, those things, where's the compromise? Where do we find like the balance point where we can provide these gamification rewards to encourage good health, but at the same time, protect users from potentially unfair regulations. I mean, I don't think we're going to be able to answer that today, but maybe you have a thought.
2: (laughs) We've definitely played around with DAO structures to help sort of move around management and control pieces. There's a lot that can be played with there, but it's such new territory. So sometimes you don't want to be the first out of the gate with it.
0: You mentioned your technical white paper that's being worked on. I know you're not a technical founder per se, but maybe could you share a little bit about You know, is there a blockchain protocol currently used in Maka Health or is that like on the roadmap and anything related to?
2: Sure. Yeah, our roadmap and there's the gamification aspect. So we're going to be building that on Polygon in the next phase. That's going to launch through the practitioner network and a referral network, but then building onto the individual app. So. Lots of pieces on this Uber of functional medicine. So bit by bit, we're building it up. And then on our data marketplace, that's a private NFT-based design. So that would be one of the pieces you'd find in the technical white paper. One of the elements that's very important to us is essentially how the practitioners, when they're weighing in on What working with individuals on the platform, weighing in on decisions, how we're essentially training our AI algorithm for better diagnostics through that process. So, that's a big element of it as well. As you said, I'm not in the technical lead there, so I may be at my cap.
0: Yeah, I'll be looking forward to reading the white paper once it's released. I appreciate that. And I'll make sure to share with the audience as well. So, we talked about game theory a bit, we talked about engaging patients, people to be more active in their health. And one thing that's important as well is community engagement. With peer-to-peer engagement, so can you share with us some of the important things related to that, and maybe how you're taking those important things and applying them to Maka Health?
2: There's so many ways to approach this question, and like a very functional, you know, product manager perspective. We have a UX/UI team that's literally building that side on our member app right now, so that's kind of fun. I'm really focused on that. To me, 2023 has been the year of community. This is what we're focused on. But right now, when I think about community, I think it starts from the values and the energy that the team holds, and then it scales from there. So it's been very big focus of mine to have a team around us that really believes in the mission and the cause. And then when everyone has conversations in their community, people like are ignited by that. So I mentioned spaces. This is something, one of the reasons I'm in Portugal and likely heading towards London in a couple of weeks. For me, it's really how we sort of connect on the ground, but keep that relationship for continuity. So I think that can be really beautiful and powerful. So that's one way of looking at it. And from another way of looking at it, sort of more of a technical white people way of looking at it, very fascinated by the concept of inequity aversion. And this is right back from the days of, you know, we were designing, how do we build better collective decision-making processes where people are essentially not only engaged in whatever collective outcome it's going to be so maybe i'll use a quick example here early on in the days of ethelo we did a campaign around
0: sorry to stop you but maybe could you explain what ethelo is for the audience as well
2: sure the first company i co-founded and this is over a decade ago but It's essentially started as a mathematical algorithm. Just shout out to founder John Richardson. I'm not a mathematician, but to quickly see the potential of this, essentially how we could build through math, more nuanced collective decisions for essentially a country, an enterprise, municipalities, the companies now, the technology is now deployed in hundreds of municipalities around the world. But we essentially looked at it from the framework of how can we bring together a group of people around an issue that could be incredibly divisive and act actually get through the static to something that is like generally supported through a crowd consensus? And how can the math show us what that is? And so if you take a crowd through a decision on, and so I'll just use a a very early example, we did a campaign in the province that I was living in British Columbia around over an election. So we said, if there was no party politics, and there was just all these different policies, you know, and we were going to create a platform that was any of these parties could pick up and say that was the ideal mandate. For this government, let's make that super real. Let's cost all of this out. Let's make sure that if you can't have two things at the same time, that in the back end of this, and we essentially built this BC mandate campaign and built through canvassing that the population like a non-partisan electoral mandate. So that was like an early example of what was possible with that math. And so that's what now all these governments in the world are saying, okay, great, we can actually understand what our population really wants and then do that. Let's try that out. So anyway, now I forgot why I was talking about Ethel in the first place, but... <laughs> uh, th- we were talking
0: about governance of <laughs> community equity version. engagement. Equity aversion.
2: <laughs> but one of the things we realized is that you could actually mathematically plot how much inequity you're comfortable with because you'd end up with these curves where you'd have, you know, a lot of uh, support in the middle and then little hump on the side with the people that were really outliers. So you could essentially work your way through a flatter curve, allow for the outliers. It was fascinating, but you could click through all these different decision outcomes and see what was like your tolerance level. Anyway, all that to say, this is when I realized that math was incredibly fascinating to impact society, but that from a collective group engagement perspective, if we actually managed for inequality, it would just move through like a much more harmonious outcomes in, in technology and society. So yes, when I think about how we're building MACA, this is how I think about how we do that.
0: Really interesting. I'm going to include a link to Ethelo in the show notes for anyone listening. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that?
2: No, I think I just was on a little bit of an ethlo tangent, but I can reel it back to health here.
0: <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, if you think about it, we need better healthcare governance as well so like we got to figure that out and ethelos the learnings from Ethlo could be applied like you're doing for Maka health so can you share some feedback on Maka health from actual users and also potentially your investors and, and community in terms of like what they liked maybe something they didn't like and they want improved or a new feature or something just like what's your sense of
2: Yeah. So we're in private beta. So we have whatever, a few hundred users that have gone through it and all that feedback. I think on the member side, there's just a lot of energy actually towards the discovery of great stuff. Actually, the marketplace and incentivization, people actually really like that. Like It's fun. And I think one of the things that we're a little bit like Sweatcoin in that like we love neurotech, but good scientifically backed stuff. We love our genetics partner nutrition genome we love them and we want to talk about them because they're the best at what they do so i think people do get excited about like the products in our network which is interesting and you know we often want to get people to the best curated wellness stuff but from like a individual health management perspective one of the things we're actually having to manage for is the depth that people already understand about people aren't necessarily tracking their vital signs nor can list their vital signs nor know why what's important and why so we're having to definitely going through this exercise of going, how can we be really clear and educating people every step of the way? So, you know, you don't need to see a functional doctor, which just to give you an example, I got to Lisbon and it was like a four month wait list to see the functional doctor. And, you know, usually it's something like that when you're looking. So anyway, so they don't have to do that, but they get the level of education along the way that they can like really start having that their own pathway through it. And we can automate that if they're out of range or need to make some lifestyle modifications. That's a big piece of it in the next phase. On the practitioner side, it's interesting because we know from a practitioner management platform perspective, we need to build for practitioners to be happy with using Maka for their business management and their essentially integrative health view on their clients. But we have some really cool decision tools like health diagnostic decision tools under the hood coming, which you can just see when you show a practitioner, their eyes light up because any practitioner in the integrative health space is managing so much variability just from their memory. And the fact that we can make that into something coherent and plaudible and visual just yeah, allows a lot more almost like superhuman's power for the practitioner to make really good decisions for people.
0: When you say practitioner, can you specifically define what kind of individuals they are? What are they practicing?
2: Yeah, so functional and integrative health is the scope of the practitioners. So if you look at, just to give you a sense of the market size, like general practitioners in the US, I think there's 40,000 of them, like 20% of them have done functional or integrative training on top of that. So it's quite a large number, plus like 8,000 naturopathic clinics, plus all the functional health coaches. And I'm just looking, you're in the US, like US sort of pod of practitioners. That's our focus and people, though we are working with practitioners in Switzerland and Mexico and you name it.
0: So health coaches are a big community now as well. It's entry to becoming a health coach is less demanding than becoming a naturopathic MD, for example. So there's many of them. And I think they might be looking for some sort of platform like this or some sort of entryway to get new students or members or users, however you want to call them. So that's pretty interesting. What's like the mix right now of your practitioners? Are they mostly functional medicine doctors? You know, what kind of level are they? I'm just curious.
2: So we have a policy of in terms of the people that are going to be working with our premium cohort, they have to be sort of mid to senior level professionals, because you can't just like step out of a coaching program and really, really effectively serve and also people that are like have ally networks around them. So typically, like our head of health science, for example, she has a whole handful of her functional medicine doctor mentor that is always there, the naturopath she works with, you know, the coach she worked with. So like these individuals on, in themselves have their, you know, health team to support their clients. So we have this kind of, I'm not managing the practitioner community. So it actually, they have to ask her of what's in the Rolodex right now. But I would say it's trending towards the functional medicine. Like there's a few certification programs that we're very, very comfortable with, including the Institute of Functional Medicine, which we're a member of. But, and you know, and if essentially someone has general practitioner training and then training on top of that, then we're very comfortable with that. But there's definitely like a line of discretion in how we're working with who's part of the community right now.
0: Interesting. Yeah, no, it's good to know that there is a level of vetting that you do to let practitioners be on the platform. Otherwise, you might have like some qualified people kind of giving advice and that might not be good for Micah Health or those individuals as well.
2: There's also just dangerous therapies that people are like, they get so attached to like this liver cleanse, but they don't bother to look at, you know, someone's gush issues and they can't handle it. We just need people that are like very data driven and have done their homework.
0: That's a really good point. I totally agree. One question, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but does your platform, does it tend to integrate devices like wearable devices into the system? Is that a feature?
2: It's a build into next phase feature for sure.
0: All right. So I'm curious, I know blockchain adoption is tough. Do you have any thoughts on why it's so hard overall? And then maybe if you want to list some of your favorite projects, what you think is going on?
2: Blockchain's is kind of a funny thing because if you look at it through the lens of a technologist, they're going, what do you mean? I can build with the blockchain, pick whatever protocol like there's more and more and more friendly to build on. That being said, when you ask that question, I think you're kind of thinking about the end user and the mass population and kind of getting people onboarded. And I've mentioned Sweatcoin before, but like there to me is like right now the sort of shining example of much, much more mass adoption in this space That being said, we're in a real tricky cultural time with Web3 and like there's just the trust just isn't there. People, you know, unless they've been in it and are really paying attention, everyone's kind of out right now. They're out of that space. So I believe things are going to come back. I think it's going to get better regulated and that builders are going to keep building. So that's what we do. But I think we need some PR. We need some good grounded.
0: I mean, it takes time, these things. And, you know, the infrastructure for Web3 is it's still early. I mean, the development is yeah. still early. And I think that even though it's still early, we're seeing so much progress very quickly. I'm very optimistic about that.
2: Me too. And like Metamask is still too much for most people. Just in terms of wallet tech. When we're designing the Maka wallet tech, we're like, how can we make this as invisible as possible and still viable? Like how can they hardly know? How can they hardly know?
0: Yeah. And there's a big education piece to it all, too, explaining to them, like, why is your private key so important, et cetera? Very cool. Are there any specific other projects that you found to be, like, very important that you think will be critical for the space?
2: I definitely want to shout out to Rightium. They just launched out of Vancouver. And I love projects that, like, democratize access to things. They're distributed ledger technology based.
0: What is it called? Sorry, I didn't catch it.
2: Rightium, R-E-I-T-I-U-M. But they essentially allow anyone to invest in real estate for like a hundred bucks up. And then you can essentially like get rental income. Like it's a whole ecosystem to allow fractionalization of real estate ownership. So I love that. I think that's the future. It's just a very grounded way that people can get into distributed ledger technology and invest and not kind of get caught up in the boom and bust cycle that we've been seeing in the crypto space.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to include that in the show notes, right? right And I think that you heard of Roofstock. Roofstock is doing something similar, I think, Mm -hmm. in the real estate space. So yeah, I always found that healthcare is probably one of those last industries to adopt this blockchain web three tech. But I think it'll also be the most important, valuable over time. So that's why we're in it. I don't know if I've asked you this specifically yet, but I want to make sure I catch it. Do you have any personal health experiences that might have influenced you to build Maka Health?
2: We did talk about that. I had to give the investors their money back and move to Whistler situation. That was like my, aha, functional we- medicine. That's kind of the big one. But actually, I could just say the last year, a few years, this sounds a little ridiculous, but I feel like I get younger. I do. I feel like living this way, like I can't believe I still feel like I'm 20. I'm 38. I don't know. I have so much energy and I just feel like this is possible and everyone should know a few of these simple tools and reduce their stress. And I just want to share it with the world. So anyway.
0: Yes. If you told me you were 20, I'd believe you. So that's
2: a—that's
0: <laughs> definitely for sure. Any final takeaways, anything I didn't ask, maybe that you want to share with the audience?
2: Ooh, thank you. Well, just thanks for listening. I would say that I would love you to follow us on LinkedIn. And actually LinkedIn is probably our, our best point of contact right now or signing up on our our website for next stage of launch. But we'd love to yeah, stay connected and grow this. Well, what is our mission is universal wellness, which of course has so many layers, but build this sort of game changing culture movement with as many people as possible. There's space for everybody, definitely. So that's it.
0: Michelle, I just want to thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. We talked a lot about functional wellness how that's changed and the meaning of that has changed over time and what you're building to connect to different people, practitioners, and really just anyone who's interested in optimizing their health. I think it's a tough challenge, but I think that it's great that you're working on it and just really happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.